0: And let's turn for Old Testament reading to Psalm 21. <clears throat> I'll be reading the first seven verses. <clears throat> and then our New Testament reading in text this morning is found in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. So if you'd put your finger at Philippians 3, <clears throat> 1 through 11. And turn to Psalm 21, verses 1 through 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. a Psalm of David. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire. If not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with rich blessings, you set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation, splendor and majesty you bestow on him, for you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad. With the joy of your presence, for the king trusts in the Lord. Through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. And then our New Testament reading from Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss, The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for reading and for the hearing of Your Word. You have ordained that Your Word to be read, that Your Word to be heard. And the Holy Spirit, we pray that You would do that work as we plead with You again and again as we take up the Scriptures, whether in private devotion or family devotion or in the assembly itself, that You would illumine Your Word to our hearts and to our minds. You would plant it deeply in our souls to produce fruit in our lives. But now, Lord, we come to the preaching of your word. We recognize that you have commanded that your word be proclaimed and preached, that the gospel be heralded, that you have set apart men that you have called to this task. You've set them apart through the laying on of hands to proclaim this gospel. Lord, we know that the men that you set apart need that gospel for themselves, that they offer to others when they preach, that they have their own weaknesses and their own struggles. Even as your servant stands before the congregation this morning in need of the strength and unction of your Holy Spirit in preaching this gospel with clarity, and with power. And so, Lord, I pray that you would grant that strength that you may be glorified in the preaching of your word. Give us ears to hear, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a very rich text. In fact, so much so that I plan to do two sermons from this text. This morning we're going to emphasize the front end of the text, but I want to read I wanted to read the whole pericope so that we understand the front end verses in light of what follows. And then next time I come back, Lord willing, we will come back to this text and we will focus on the latter part of the text that we have here in front of us. I do think it's interesting and even almost amusing That here Paul says, finally, my brothers, when he's got two more chapters in the letter, he's right halfway in the middle of his epistle, he says, finally, and I think his intention here is, listen up, what I'm about to say to you is very important, it reminds me of what happened many years ago when the Major Retreat and Conference Center was not even built yet. You know, Jake serves on the committee and has a great love for, for the retreat center. <clears throat> but at the very first family conference, too long ago, it was a long, long, long time ago when we had that conference, and I was the director of the conference. We had a young preacher to come, 25 years old, zealous, powerful preacher, uh, like most OPC ministers, long-winded preacher, and the retreat center didn't even exist. We met in a farmhouse that belonged to Paul Cunningham who donated the the uh, the property for the retreat center. Um, and then for our plenary sessions that took place in the evening, we went across the road down by the Bull Pasture River. Yes, that's the name of the river. Down by the Bull Pasture River where Paul put up these two big post and and we put a tarp over it that 75 people could get under that tarp for evening services. And I can remember this young minister was preaching, and he was preaching his heart out and there was no electricity down there and it got so late it was getting dark and he couldn't read his notes or his bible. And one of the elders from our church, Walter Robinson, took him his flashlight and gave him his flashlight so he could finish his sermon and said, now tomorrow you bring your own flashlight when he handed it to him in the middle of the sermon. And so he used the flashlight literally to read his Bible and his notes to finish the sermon. Well, the next night we're there and he's aware of the time factor or somewhat aware. So he's preaching his heart out. He's preaching as hard as he can. And about 15, maybe 20 minutes into the sermon, he says, finally. And then he has a startled look on his face. And we're even more startled than that because we know that he's a long-winded preacher. He said, finally, to the first point. (laughs) And and then he went ahead and and he, 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 he finished his sermon. And he finished it as it was getting dark, but he could still see enough to see without his flashlight. But I'll never forget that. We know he was nowhere near through with the sermon when he said finally. And, and Paul does the same thing here. I think what Paul is saying is listen up to what I'm about to tell you. It's important. And what follows is an exhortation that strikes me as odd. Maybe not you, but it does me. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. That's the exhortation. That's the commandment. Rejoice in the Lord. Does that seem strange to you? I mean, to command someone to be joyful, to command someone to rejoice, to command someone to have joy, it seems to me like you either are joyful or you aren't. Now, now if he means by that, finally, brothers meditate upon those things that i have taught to you meditate upon this gospel that you have Uh, the fruit of that of course then is joy but in shorthand he gives an exhortation finally brothers rejoice in the lord and that's what i want to focus our attention on here and now in the front end of this text is on joy have you noticed the theme the, the call to worship, Psalm 100. Um, we sang from Psalm 47, which calls upon us to rejoice. We sang Joy to the World, which is a hymn we often sing in this season uh, as well. And then we're going to sing Jesus, Thou Joy of Loving Hearts, I think is the final hymn um, that we're going to be singing. You, you you see the theme of joy that's woven throughout the the liturgy that we have before us this morning. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. And I think Paul is talking about a deeper kind of joy than oftentimes we think of. This is not the joy of mirth. It's not the joy, okay, let's have a Christmas party. Let's all get together and let's drink eggnog and let's sing carols and let's have a good time together. There's nothing wrong with that. And that's happy, it's joyful to do that, but I don't think that's what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about a deep-seated joy. A deep-seated joy. He's not talking about how you feel feel at the moment. But a joy that is resident in the heart of the one who has been reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ and nothing can separate you from that joy. It comes from your relationship with Christ Jesus himself. Joy is a central theme of this epistle. We've already seen it. We see it in particular in this text. A number of years ago many years ago. I read a book. You've probably had certain times in your life where you've read a particular book that's sort of like a paradigm shift. It's like the light goes on. Not that it may tell you something you didn't know, but it crystallizes it and it makes sense. It wakes you up to a reality. And I had that kind of experience with a book that I read written by John Piper. Are y'all With Doctor, with John Piper. Piper, of course, is a Reformed Baptist um, minister, now retired, I think, uh, as, as a minister. The book was called Desiring God. Have you read the book Desiring God? If you did, it may have had that kind of impact with you as well. I found the book to be very, very profound. Does anybody remember the subtitle to that book? It's actually quite provocative. It might be the most provocative subtitle I have ever read to a Christian book. It's the Meditations of a Christian Hedonist. That's the subtitle of the book. Now, what can be any further removed from Christianity than hedonism? The headlong pursuit of pleasure. He means to be provocative, which Piper does often. But he means to be provocative with that subtitle to his book because what he's saying there is <clears throat> he's pointing to something that's different than what the world points to when it looks after and seeks after pleasure but that your pleasure is found only in your communion and your union with Christ Jesus in the gospel it's something that's deep centered And that Reformed Baptist used that good Presbyterian shorter catechism. Remember shorter catechism question one? What is the chief end of man? We have mostly older children here that have studied the catechism and some really older children here who have studied the the, the catechism. Man's chief end is to glorify God. Everybody understands that one. That makes sense, doesn't it? But to enjoy God... I mean, to glorify God, I gave it away. And enjoy Him forever. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And what Piper does in his book is he puts a twist on that catechism answer. He says, man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever by enjoying him forever. Piper is getting at a deep-seated, resident joy that we were created for when Adam and Eve were created in the image of God, this found in communion with God that Adam and Eve had before the fall, but is restored to us now in redemption that we have in Christ Jesus as believers. But where does he get it? That is Piper in his book. Well, I think he gets it from the Bible, most importantly. But but Piper had two primary influences in his life. I heard him say one time, the saddest thing to him is he doesn't think they would have gotten along with each other if they'd have known each other. <laughs> Jonathan Edwards is one and C.S. Lewis is the other. Now, you've probably read some of Jonathan Edwards. Many of you may have read even more of C.S. Lewis. Do you remember the title of Lewis's autobiography? It's called Surprised by Joy. And he's not talking about his wife, whose name was Joy. He wrote the autobiography before he met Joy. Surprised by Joy. And then another book I would commend to you by Lewis which is after he met his wife, his memoirs during her battle with cancer and death called A Grief Observed. A Grief Observed. Are you familiar with that? It is profoundly powerful because he almost lost his joy when he watched his wife die. He almost lost his faith. He had a crisis in his faith. But of course he didn't because he's kept by God. And what Lewis is talking about when he's talking about joy is I think the same thing Piper's talking about when he's talking about joy. It's the same thing Paul's talking about when he's talking about joy in this particular text, this deep-seated, resident experience that we have because of our union with God through Christ Jesus that is not dependent at all upon your circumstances. It's dependent upon that relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when Paul says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord, he's appealing to that resident joy that you have. And you can see that by simply remembering Paul's circumstances when he wrote this letter, when he issues this exhortation, he writes an epistle. Its central theme is joy while chained to a palace guard, while under house arrest, while awaiting trial before Nero. When he will come and his appeal, appeal will be heard by Nero. <clears throat> under these circumstances, these dire circumstances that he finds himself in, and yet he's full of joy. He's full of joy. And that's what makes this so rich as we see it and what something we need to see in our own lives as well. It is your joy dependent on your circumstances? Is it dependent upon your emotions at the moment? Now, I'm not saying that this joy means we're always happy. There are times when we are bereaved. There are times when, when, when it, it seems like it's too hard. There are times when it seems like it's too much. I can't handle this. Then, by God's grace, we can. Why? Because the world will try to rob you of your joy. It will come against you. Satan will try to rob you of your joy. He will come against you, but he can't because it's rooted and grounded in that communion with Christ Jesus, which is eternal the ups and downs that we face in this life, things that cause us sadness or broken hearts, things that make us weep at times and battle against sin and battle against sickness and battle all kinds of battles, battle against death when we have bereavement, these kinds of things that come against us. And the world does. It tries to rob you of that joy. But all of those things are temporal. This life here now is temporal. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. But our life with God is eternal. Those who are reconciled to Christ Jesus. It is deep-seated. Remember what's going on in the epistle, things that we've already seen What did Satan do? What was Satan's motive in in stirring up this opposition against the Apostle Paul that brought him to Rome and imprisonment in the first place? Satan believed, if I can get Paul in prison, that's going to discourage everybody else and it's going to stop the spread of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what do we see Paul early in the epistle? What do we see him doing? He is rejoicing. He is almost giddy with excitement. Why? Because Satan's attempt to enchain the gospel by him being thrown in jail has turned on its head. Paul's under house arrest. People are coming in. Multiple visitors. He's preaching the gospel. People are hearing the gospel. He's chained to the palace guard. He's preaching the gospel. What happens? Palace guard evidently are hearing the gospel, are being converted. The gospel is spread all the way into Caesar's own household. Paul tells us all these things in this epistle. And those that are not in bonds, those who are free Christians that are in the streets, they're emboldened by Paul's boldness in prison, so they're preaching the gospel. And the gospel's spreading. You see, that's what matters to the apostle Paul. Because his joy is found in his relationship with Christ Jesus and in his zeal to see others come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his joy. That's what stirs him. Here we have the Apostle Paul as an example himself. One of the things you see as you walk through the text Look at what he goes on to say to, to show how opposition will come to try to rob you of your joy. Look at who he says in verse 2. He says, look out. I think the New King James translates it, beware. I like the stronger translation, beware. More than just look out or be on the lookout, but beware. Beware. Look out for the dogs, the evildoers, for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul wouldn't win any awards for political correctness, would he? And I think we need to be careful with our language. Don't get me wrong. I don't go around calling people dogs. You need to remember the very ones he calls dogs in this text. In in, in Romans, he said that he said to God, Lord, if there's any way you can save my kinsmen according to flesh, let me be condemned in order to save them. And God said, no. Though he loved his kinsmen according to the flesh. Why does he call them dogs? Why does he call them evildoers? Why does he call them the mutilators of the flesh? The the Greek there is actually a play on words with circumcision. It it can be transliterated as concision. It's not actual circumcision. He says, why? Because there's no faith in it. And so they're they're just mutilating the flesh. Why is Paul so concerned about these Jews and what they're bringing against the church of Jesus Christ? Of course, the difficulty is, is he talking here about Jews that are persecuting the church as he did as a Pharisee? He actually mentions that in the text. Or is he talking about Judaizers, that is, those who name the name of Christ and yet still are propagating a works righteousness so-called gospel. Frankly, it doesn't make any difference if it's one or the other or even both that he is addressing here. What Paul realizes is this. This is what will rob you of your joy. This is what will rob you of that deep-seated joy is works righteousness. It's a false gospel. That you can somehow justify yourself before God by your own law-keeping? That's the Pharisaical view of it. And so what did they do? They were very, very careful to keep the law outwardly. Every jot and tittle narrowly interpreted. And Paul calls them dogs. Jesus called them whitewashed sepulchres. You're all pretty on the outside, but it stinks unto death inside. Any notion of works righteousness will rob you of joy because you can't be righteous enough. You cannot. Our joy comes from being reconciled to God through the free grace of God that's found in Christ Jesus and the redemption that we have in his blood. And Paul knows that. Paul knows with this false teaching of interjecting some form of works righteousness into the church. He knows the destruction that will come from it. When he's speaking to the Galatians, they are chiefly, I think, about the Judaizers. He calls it another gospel. He says, if anybody comes and preaches another gospel, I don't care who they are. Don't listen to it. But he goes beyond that. He says... Let them be anathema. Let them be a curse. Let them burn in hell. That is how deadly legalism is to the soul. It will rob you of any joy. And Paul knows this. Our joy is found by faith in Christ Jesus. Who died in the place of sinners? It's by grace through faith alone. And so he says, "Watch out! Beware! Keep your eye out for this false teaching." And, and, and the reason why this false teaching of works righteousness finds its way in the life of the church over and over again is because our flesh is comfortable with recognize that the old man in you is comfortable with it. What you have in your sin is a legal spirit. That is, the desire, the earnest desire to justify yourself before God, to do it on your own. The legal spirit is the spirit of the flesh. And that legal spirit raises its head in every single one of us. And Paul knows it. And that's why it gets a foothold into the life of the church. No matter what its manifestation may be or how the doctrine is nuanced in this place or in that, beware of it and those who teach it because your joy is found when you realize, I can't save myself, but Jesus saved me. And I'm resting in him. And the union that we have in Christ Jesus. Paul goes on to talk about the flesh. Those who would commend themselves by their pedigree. Again, he's talking about these Jews. Paul says, There's your, here's your pedigree. Okay, let me show you mine. to you you comp- Let's compare the flesh. Let's compare your pedigree with my pedigree. You may have a pedigree as a Jew, but mine's even better. Look at what he says. Though I myself, verse four, have reason for confidence in the flesh, also if anyone else thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Look what he says. Circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. He can change. He can. Tra- he can tra- trace his genealogy all the way back to Benjamin. You see, a Hebrew of Hebrew, as to the law of Pharisee. Now, we hear the word Pharisee, and we have a negative connotation to it. The people in that day heard Pharisee. They thought, that's a holy man. It wasn't, but they thought, that's a holy man. This is somebody who cares about the law of God. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, Paul was so zealous that those who taught salvation by grace through faith in Christ Jesus should be tracked down and should be arrested and should be thrown into prison. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's talking there in pharisaical terms. That is, in the outward keeping of the law of God. But Paul knows in that great zeal that he had, along with his... you know, the list of all of who he is, a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised the eighth day, tribe of Benjamin, various kind of things, along with all of that, and with his zeal for what he thought was righteousness, his heart was wicked, and he was in bondage until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and his heart was set free. Don't put confidence in anything in the flesh. Let your confidence be found in Christ Jesus alone. So, Paul says rejoice in the Lord. Paul says beware of those who are going to come and steal your joy. Let me put the question to you. Is Jesus your joy? Is Jesus your joy? What is your joy? Your joy is what's most important to you. What do you love the most? And the thing is, Satan tricks us. Sometimes we think, well, it's only if we love bad things. If your joy is found even in the good gifts that God gives to you that are temporary gifts, that's not the joy that Paul's talking about here. Your family, that's a good gift, isn't it? Do we not love our families? Do we not cherish them in the Christian church? Jesus says, You're not worthy to be a disciple unless you hate your kids. Isn't that what he said? Kids, unless you hate your father and mother, you're not worthy to be Jesus' disciple. And we know he's speaking in hyperbolic language there. We know he's trying to get our attention. What do you to most? Is this wonderful family that God has blessed you with? Or do you love him the most? Or your job? Or your possessions? Pete prayed a wonderful prayer, an important prayer. But did you notice the way he prayed it? He prayed for God to prosper this congregation. He prayed for jobs. He prayed for prosperity. But did you see the end of the prayer? is that the kingdom of God can be established here. That the Lord would prosper you so that through your generosity and giving and your joy to the work of the kingdom, the Lord will prosper the kingdom here, you see. Instead of simply enjoying the good things of God, which we are to do. But they can quickly become idols. Good things, not just wicked things and sins, but good things. Is Jesus your joy? That's the question. Because we see here in this epistle, in the Apostle Paul and in the Philippians, what it looks like when Jesus is their joy. Paul is giddy. Because the devil's attempt to silence him has actually served to spread the gospel all the more. Paul's lost everything. We're going to see next time I come back. Everything he had. But he's found what's most important. That's what we see in the text. And then the Philippians themselves, they hear of Paul's need. What do they do? They take up an offering. They take Epaphroditus. They send Epaphroditus on his way. You go take care of Paul. That self-sacrifice for their brother in Christ. Why? Because Jesus is their joy. And so that's the question. Is Jesus your joy? Is Jesus your joy? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for what your word teaches us. And Father, we thank you for for the work that you did not only in Paul but also in the brothers and sisters in Christ in in Philippi. How we see your spirit at work in them. We pray that we would be unencumbered by other things and unimpeded by those that are outside of us, whether it be the devil or the world that would seek to rob us of our joy. That you would be our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.